Hello, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kyan Dorsha. Hi, I'm yeah. very excited to be talking to you. My name is Sidnova. Um, what pronouns do you go by, Kyan? She, her, lady. <laughs> I go by he, him. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to Kyan today. Um, she is my mentor and my sister and has told me so many wonderful things about growing up in New York and um, kind of her experiences in living in New York as a trans woman in earlier decades. Do you want to talk to me first about where you are born and where you grew up? I was born in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Um, then I moved to Bushwick as a child, which was a wonderful and, and family-orientated place. And scary at the same time. And what year were you born? I was born in 19... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in the 60s. Uh -huh. um, the latter of the 60s. In between. Yeah. In between. I was yeah. born on the cusp of a lot of stuff. Racial riots and the death of Martin Luther King. And, and I think it was the death of John F. Kennedy first. But it was a lot of racial stuff going on when I... What's some of your memories of that time? I oddly remember some stuff I should have never remembered. I remember a fire from from our housing unit as a child, and I wasn't even born yet, but I remember that fire when I told my parents they were very surprised that I had that memory, but it's been burned in my head. Um, one of my earliest memories of being, I guess, gender different was um, my first communion. I wore all white. We got dressed at 6 o'clock in the morning to be online at the church at 7. By 4 o'clock in the morning, that next day, I was still clean, spotless. By 6.30... Communion morning, my brother was completely dirty from head to toe. We both wore white. So it was pretty much an idea that I was going to be a different kind of child. And you had to take care of your outfits from a very young age. From a very young age. <laughs> it was on. It was kind of acknowledgement to me that I could do something so wonderful as keeping that whole entire white outfit still white. And you, you talked to me before about, you know, that you never really came out that you were... No. I, I just was. I, I did not know what I was doing was wrong to my parents. I did not know or what society considered wrong. I was just very, very feminine from a child. It was nothing that I turned on, nothing that I could turn off. It also was nothing that I seen as different. Everybody else seen it different. I would say my parents were looking at it a whole different way. Um, my mom just recently said, well, you never really came out the closet because you were always you, um, which is a fact. I never, I never really changed. Um, I tried the, the 
the straight thing. I tried to blend in and mesh as a child with society, and it just was that sense of feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. And it wasn't my uncomfortableness. It was everybody else around me that was uncomfortable with me that made it kind of odd, made it kind of seriously crazy to, to look at from a child's point of view. It was very confusing. What were some of the ways that people told you you were different? I was either too feminine or weird. Um, I didn't have the normal sense of play. I didn't want to do things like stand outside in the rain or play football. or so I, I just didn't have any value mm -hmm. in that kind of thing. And as a child, you want to think your child is healthy. You want to send him out to the front yard and go play with the guys. And I would rather sleep with the guys than play with them. Um, they, it was just something I fancied. It was just something that was in me. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was something... Um, I hear these horrible stories that people make up about how very their change in their life came from, you know, rapes and stuff like that. And I, I totally feel sympathetic for it happening to them. I can't say that it was a horror story. Nothing happened to me. I wasn't raped by an uncle or none of that crazy stuff. I just was. Yeah. And it was nothing that anybody pushed on me. It was nothing that a neighbor did to me. It was just me. Can you tell me a little bit about being a teenager and um, when you went from thinking of yourself as just you and um, effeminate and weird to, you know, starting to think of yourself as a woman? I think in Catholic school, I had a sense of feeling I wanted to, I wanted the girls' sweaters, I wanted the little plaid skirts. I wanted that uniform. I really thought that they had me in the wrong uniform for some damn reason. But I just wanted that sweater. I wanted that little emblem on my sweater. And of course, the guy's sweaters didn't come with all of the frills or the ruffles or the pleats. We just had the horrible gray pants and the sweater and the tie, which was horrible to me. So as a child, I used to like take little things like my mother's bracelets or her diamond rings. I didn't know what a real diamond was. And I would wear them to school. And of course, I, the school would notice that I have on an unusual amount of jewelry and, and quite sparkly. And they would call my mom. And of course, I would get the normal ass whipping. And the question would always be, why? But I never knew why. Not until adulthood. So when I first started as a teenager to identify, I think it was about 13 or 14, and I realized that I did not like men's clothing. It just bothered me. It made me feel uncomfortable to house myself in something I didn't feel comfortable in. And basically that's what I thought of clothing as, housing. It's just a cover-up to cover up what's inside. And I would take little things and wear them out and, of course, never, never in the house. But if I had five minutes out to go out or to go to a party, you could best believe I'm taking something of my mother's and I'm making a wardrobe change on the way. So I'm sort of like 
Wonder Woman in a way because I would leave the house looking very dapper and get to whatever function I was going looking very elegant. <laughs> it was There was no order in, in how I achieved this until I started getting caught. So my, my failure to, I guess, launch was I didn't know how to put stuff back where I got it, which would get me busted. Um, of course, because there would be nobody in my house but me and my brother, so who else would play with women's clothes or move them or... It was me. Um, so I think those were the first times when I realized when I was about 16, 17, I had a boyfriend. And he apparently liked me better when I dressed because then it was me. And whenever I had to wear, like, boys' attire, he positively would not talk to me. And later on, he called me and said, oh, I hated that outfit. Why did you wear that? And at that time, I was like, oh, my God, I think he's right. And how do I go about this? <laughs> how do I spring this on the earth? So I, I shifted into, like, unisex clothing like parasuco pants and parachute pants and and stuff like that. I got my first pair of Billy Martin pink cowboy boots, which my father hated. But as long as I didn't wear the pink or the purple parachute pants with the pink boots, it was okay. It was the combination of the pink boots and the purple pants which sent my father into total chaos. But if I could find a normal pair of jeans and wear the pink boots, he would let me. I can't tell you how many times he's actually thrown those boots out and I went and got them. <laughs> so that's how, you know, your, your parents reacted to you. What about the world around you? Um, the world around me was, was much different. I found outside to be more acceptable to a trans youth than my own family. I found my own community more of a challenge than than my family. I found the GLBT community, which at that time was just GL and B, um, there really wasn't a T connected to me. Um, of course, I seen, at, at that time, very few girls that were out and proud and, and just living their everyday life as a lady. So I didn't have references. I didn't have any any focus point to say, this is who I patent myself after, because all I had was my mom and my grandmothers, and that's who I basically am. I am my mother's child, definitely. But it was that sense of my own community had no place for me. Um, equally said I need therapy. Need therapy. Um, I remember a psychologist telling me in his own personal opinion, and he closed the door to tell me this, um, it's not a gay issue. It's a gender issue. And as a teenager, I didn't understand what the hell that meant. What, what do you mean gender? And he was like, your gender assignment is what's throwing you off. And that's where people are having a problem. 
where I had the question, okay, so does my community help me? Because I'm 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 in between suicide as a child and running away. The options were becoming thinner and thinner when it was clear I could not stop what was going on with me. It became more volatile for my dad. Um, my mom just totally didn't get it. Um, there were, there were, and it wasn't like I didn't have gay people in my family. I had an uncle that was gay, um, great uncle. But again, we had just started accepting gayness in the 60s and 70s. Here it is, a child stepping into these shoes at a very early age. Um, my mother often referenced, why can't you be like your uncle? Your uncle's conservative. He's quiet. He doesn't wear women's clothing. And how, as a child, how do you say, I don't know why this is happening. I, I'm just am. And I'm going to take the ass whipping because I'm going to do it again. And you're going to not like it again, but I'm going to do it. There was no, no... I remember going to um, Gay Men's Health Crisis. They had these groups, these Glenny groups. And I went to the group, and they had a circle of gay and lesbian youths. And they put me and another girl outside the circle and said, if we had anything to offer to raise our hands. But because this was a gay and lesbian group, we could not be in the meeting, but we could participate. How awful was that? I immediately said, okay, I'm about to take another ass whipping. The school said, I have to come here. I don't want to come to this. And so here again, I'm shunned from my own community. Um, at this time, I started running away. I started running away. I'd rather be on a train than have to go home and face not being me. I'd rather run than not be me. When it's was, a terrible price to pay. When's the first time that you had someone support you around your gender? Ooh. I would say it wasn't my boyfriend for sure. Um, I would say well into my 20s. Well into my 20s, I worked for, I was a home health aide. And I worked with the guy that had the virus, um, he was not doing well at all. Um, very nice guy who was from Broadway, who totally got me. Got me from the first day and, and made no mistakes to say, look, you look, you look a little uncomfortable. Let's go shopping. And actually took me and bought me a couple of conservative but feminine women's outfits. And outfits that basically you wouldn't be able, unless you went into the store to buy it, you wouldn't know that that was women's clothes. You would just think, well, it's pretty. Um, but I guess his line of work on Broadway, he worked in clothing. Um, he was able to help me shift into to, to dressing in a more conservative way to protect me. Um, he did tell me there, there. Oh, I know a ton of girls like you, but I see the seriousness and and confusion in you. How about me help you through this? You're gonna need some help. So I was able to learn a lot about community through him, 
And I was also able to learn that I'm accepted by here somebody who who didn't really Trying to get the tree. I can't believe it. You are so smart, Sparky. Have a gingerbread. That's just when you want it. Um. So you were talking about um, the person who. Um, went and took you to buy some outfits, who got you. Um, when was the first time that you met another trans woman? I was in 96 West. Um, it was a little cabaret lounge. Um, I found it through the gay and lesbian. It was this tiny little book of resources. It was like a hidden book that one of my, one of my deans actually gave me. So I could have some clarity and to, to or talk to people. And um, I went to 96 West and I met a young man named MacArthur that introduced me to the guy that um, the movie Six Degrees Separation is based upon. I met that guy, Demaria, um, hung out with him for days. We all believed that he was Harry Belafonte's son. Um, not Sidney Poitier, Sidney Poitier's son. He was very nice. I don't know whose money he was spending, but they were spurts when he was spending a lot of money. And he had colorful people always around him. He was in a loner apartment. Um, we didn't know his whole story. It was a real story or nothing. Years later, I found that out. But he had just a collective group of people and this one girl um very beautiful very very beautiful um took interest in me and i i was totally floored i didn't know that she was trans not until she asked me to give her a hormone shot that i learned because at that time i found out what hormones were and I said, wait, when she explained, I said, wait, 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 you're, she said, I'm just like you, sweetie, with a little fluffing, I'm just like you, and th these hormones will help your fluff. And I said, so you're, I'm confused, and she said, no, you're, you're, Ty, turn it down. Ty, yeah. turn it down. Um, it wasn't that image. It was the image of this woman, this very beautiful woman, coming to ask me for to give her a hormone shot. Well, I had to do the homework because I was confused. So I asked one of the guys, one of the gay guys, why does she need a hormone shot? And he said, uh, hello, because she's, at that point, they, he called her crush dresser, but that not what it was and I called her on it I said so you're a cross dresser she said no sweetie I'm a lady and you're gonna be a lady too and I said how do you know she said trust me I know and you are well on your way and she says I'm gonna give you 
the needle. I'm going to tell you what to do. You do it, and I'll see you in a couple of days, and I'll give you a needle. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is insane. And she said, no, it's not insane. Actually, I started out like you. I've been on hormones for 30-something years, and I'm just like, so you're really, she says, yes, I'm just like you. And she said, it is possible. She said, but it's not easy. You're not going to have the luck I had. Um, she transitioned while working, which was unheard of at that time. But um, she worked for a magazine, a fairly well-known black magazine, as their um, publicist. And she was indeed a trans woman. I didn't even see it coming. Um, and a lot of our conversations after that day were all surrounded around the sense of community and how separated it is and some of the privileges and some things that were not so privileged. Um, also education was a big part of what she spoke about because my education would lie in jeopardy because of my gender identity. Um, it was rough all the way around the board. And I, I explained that school basically is a horror story. Mm -hmm. From 8.45 till 3 o'clock, I'm like at my worst because I'm living my worst. Um, the persecution alone from the students were unbearable. But to add that to the teacher's ignorance in gender identity was just the worst. It was the worst. And at that time, teachers could say words like faggot and, and get away with it. And so if the teachers could say, surely the kids could. So this was, you know, the regular. It, I hate to say it, but this was the norm. It was okay to stalk and pray me because I was not the norm. Hmm. What age did you meet her at? I met her at about 17, 18. Mm -hmm. 17, 18. And did you stay on hormones then? No. Um, shortly after that, like a couple of years later, she had kidney failure and some other real funky stuff going on. And some of that was related to the hormones. And that kind of scared me. That, um... That kind of scared the shit out of me. And then when we lost her, that just broke me. Here was my my savior, so to speak, who's now gone. And some of the conversation we had was about hormone abuse and going to the doctor and never over-medicating because it could cause serious problems. And she was a prime example of that. And yeah. she was taking her hormones and flying across the world and getting their hormones and combinating them, which winded up shutting down her organs. Yeah. So, I learned a lot from her, though. I learned, I learned that I can look for a job and never to give up, whether they hire me or not. If you don't fight, nobody's going to fight for you. She also told me to find mentors, find people to guide me into a better me. Because it's not all necessarily going to happen just by myself. I'm going to need help. Um, and she explained, clearly my parents were not in a place of understanding 
outside, he's going to have to look for outside resource. As far as family, I didn't get that. But I got a family, and she said, sweetie, you're going to make another one. And you're going to have to have two in order for this to be complete for you. And it, it subsequently it was the truth. It was the truth. I now realize by having this collective of family, I'm in one of the safest places because I now have the support of my parents and I now have the support of my other family. What more could I ask for? It's that kind of support that I had to kind of keep coming back. And even at my parents, I had to, one, I had to prove that I can be somebody without you looking at my gender, look at my body of work, look what I've done. And yes, I was a hoe. I, I kind of, and I tell my parents, I could not get a corporate job and be me. Um, or a job. If you're feminine and you identify as feminine, sure, you could work in retail, but I'm really not a retail person. <laughs> um, sure, I could work in a kitchen, but it dep depends on what capacity. Would I like to work in a sweaty kitchen with a whole bunch of people I don't know? No. So there, there were things, and then it was a sense of entitlement that I started to feel once I started transitioning and realizing that I'm okay. I'm not batshit, I'm not crazy. And I could I could self-identify that I'm in a safe place with this. Then I could tell the world, I'm okay. Um, I'm not butt-naked, I'm not running around. You have freedom to wear whatever you want. But I structured myself sort of like my mom. So when I did start to grow into being transgender, my mom started to see reflections of her in me. And she's like, oh, okay, you remind me of when I was young. And it's those things that give me the reassurance that I'm on the right track for her to acknowledge that, but for my dad to acknowledge, you remind me of my mother. That it was at my grandmother's funeral, and he was like, you were absolutely gorgeous. You blew the church away. You were the perfect lady at this event. And... I needed to hear it. I waited 40-something years to hear those words. Unfortunately, it was my grandmother's funeral. But no time is good as the present. I took it and ran with it. That made me so happy. Um, the years of fear over my gender identity, especially connected to my dad. Um, this was a way to say... It was a way for him to acknowledge that he seen me for what I was that day and who I am in life which every now and then he still has butt farts and he'll call me and say well you know the Lord has told me to tell you a message that you know things could be better for you sweetie things are not bad for me I'm okay I'm okay well if you give your life to Christ I've done that too I, I don't know where you get gender identity connects to my salvation it does not it does not, if anything, I've gotten a little more spiritual because I realize the flaws in our, our commonality. New messages received from Justin. And I realize that we, society, hates society. Society puts this, this air of just 
discrimination and and it's bad. It's bad. Oh my girlfriend apologizing. It's bad when when you think you you think you're okay. You think that you have this sense of family that's right there behind you. Um, and you find out by accident that they're more concerned about what everybody's thinking. What are the neighbors going to say? Uh, and it's that kind of stuff that calls for, you know, being discluded from family functions. Or better yet, me not even wanting to attend. So I would disclude myself after a while because I just, ah, I just don't want, I don't want to go to that. Because I didn't want the persecution that went along with attending. Or the, the, I could see the look of nervousness in my parents' face if I played too much. If I had just a little too much sugar, would she totally fag out? What's going to happen? So there would always be that air of, I'm watching you. As a child behind all the trauma and everything that was going on surrounded around my gender identity, I used to bed wet when I was little. This lasted up until I ran away. When I ran away, never bed wet again. So I clearly identified bedwetting with my fear of my parents, fear of just anything because I was so abnormal. Fear, mainly my fear was I'm going to the bathroom to pee. I'm going to sit down and my father's just going to knock the shit out of me. Why are you sitting in PA? But that was just my concept and my process of my gender identity. But those questions always came up. Well, you said you had to pee and why did you go behind the truck and sit? Because I felt comfortable. How else can I say that? But you can't really tell a fairly religious person that you're having these feelings and that you really like the guy next door. And I, I just, so everything was closeted as far as myself, exp, myself expressions, I guess. I had to be sheltered or shelter myself in order to protect myself. For something as simple as moving my hand in a feminine motion, I would get slapped. So I realized that this could be bad. <laughs> Gotta go. And, and it was those situations that told me this is not safe. And God help anybody that's actually having to go through what I'm going through. At that time, I felt I was all alone. I felt even in my community, I was alone wasn't until later in my adult years, in my late 20s, that I got to see the girls, but in a, a different kind of capacity. I got to see them in a nightclub setting, which they verbally attacked each other, nonstop. Maybe it's a, a banter, it's called silly banter, but I didn't find it silly or playful. I found it harmful. And I found that I didn't want to be a part of that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to sit in this caddy, free fall, and be called all out my name because you're my friend. 
Um, that just didn't sit well with me. And I watched it a couple of times happen. And I was like, oh my God, if I was that child, I'd be crying. And they'd be like, oh, you have to have top skin. It's not that serious. And I'm like, yeah, for somebody like me, this is very serious. And is this what's going to happen to me? Mm -hmm. And they just basically go, it depends. Well, girl, you're going to have to start hooking now. So this was some of the advice I was getting. And when you were meeting other women, other trans women, and you were getting this advice and you were like witnessing these things. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the environment? What year was that? Um, where were you going to? What bars were you going to? It was from the 70s, the late 80s, the early, I was sneaking away to Nickel Bar and Sally's Hideaway. And what are those bars? 42nd, 43rd. Um, Nickel Bar was on 72nd in Amsterdam, in between Amsterdam and Columbus. Um, very tiny hole in the walls. 96 West was a real big cabaret, which was phenomenal. Um, and old school, so I had a sense of learning. Um, and then I went to a place that one of my, my quote-unquote suitors took me to a place called Andre's on 125th Street. And the joke about Andre's is that I got into this beautiful place and I got through the doors and my uncle tapped me on my shoulder and he said, come with me outside, I want to talk to you. Me never questioning what Uncle Andre is doing at Andre's. Well, it turns out Uncle Andre was Andre's. And this was a family secret. Nobody told me. I had to find this out on my own. Wow, your uncle owns a gay bar. Well, how nice have the, would that have been for me to know this? Because maybe I could have met some people more like me. Um... He, he opened up a world for me. He, he not only told me that there was a legacy there, um, that they thought it was better to protect me, not to tell me. And so, you know what, look what happened anyway. Years later, I'm here. So that kind of was, that kind of was something that was meant to happen. It was meant to, to go down. Um... I'm sure to my father's surprise, he, he, if he ever hears the story, he'd, he'd be like, oh, yeah, well. But I think it was the mechanism for them not to let me know. And like a dirty little secret, your uncle owns a gay bar, which not only was a gay bar, it was one of the oldest bars where they had trans and drag performances. So this was my not only opening up into this, this was like a big showgirl event. And I didn't even know it existed. So I I hung out there a couple of times, needless to say. Which led into a whole lot of other stuff. Do you have any stories about any particular times there that you want to share? Oh, that my godfather had a talk with my so-called suitor that night and let him know that that's, I'm his god baby and don't screw me around. Which, 
my night ended early. He could have been that not screw me around. He also said to get me out of there. I had a curfew at 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock, you got to be going. <laughs> yeah, sick, sick, sick family of mine. But it it's structure. It's where I come from. It's what I come from. It's who. It's all of that. If I had to do it again, I probably would. Why? It's because it gave me everything I got today. Minus a couple of situations I would like to go back and fix. But it opened up the doors to some real conversations and real tears. And there were some very bad moments. But I, I would say the good outweighed the bad. Throughout it all, I, I sheltered myself. Even through homelessness, I did that with a air of self-preservation. In order for me to get through this, I'm just going to have to tone out and, and be on my game. And, and protect myself, but the option of going home was not an option. None that I could be fruitful. Not me. No. Mm -mm. It was it was a rough time. It was a rough time crossing over into independence abruptly because I had to. Um, <laughs> I had to do a lot I wasn't ready for, but at the same time, I was ready. I was ready because the choice of being suffocated or killed or I didn't know how long it would be before my parents either killed me or I killed myself. So by removing myself, I was able to help myself. What was your life like after you moved away from your family? Quite colorful, quite colorful. Um, I went through my ups and downs with homelessness. But I met Flawless Sabrina at Bentley's nightclub at a Suzanne Bosch party. And that was almost 30 years ago, 35 years. And it's blossomed into one of the greatest mother-daughter relationships I've ever had. I can honestly consider to be one of my great mentors. And I only have a few, but the few I have are iconic. And I'm so grateful for that. How many girls get to say that they have like three wonderful moms? I honestly can because all three of them bring something totally different to the table. My mom, Velta, Flawless, Sabrina, and Miss Major are my three mentors that just changed my life dramatically. Miss Major did it from hello. Um, flawless, kind of the same way. She seen a broken ship and she tried to fix it. And she did really good by me. She did really, really good by me. What, can you tell me about your relationship with her? What were the ways that you spent um, time together? I needed rest. She sent me to a masseuse for a weekend. It's, it's as soon as she met me, she could tell I was a little. I needed to change clothes. I needed to shower. She sent me to a masseuse. She took me back to my mom's house in, in Bushwick and tried to have a sit down so we could discuss how to get me back in, in the house and back in school, which at that time, really, somebody stepping up, but she did. 
she did. And for that, I'm to be fair. But my mother could have shot her. My mother didn't have a clue what was going on. As the years went on, my mom realized now who Flawless Sabrina is. She said, oh, my God. But at that time, Flawless took an interest in me when nobody would. Nobody would. Nobody could give a damn. And it was those kind of meets. She would take me to art galleries and show. Culturizing me. Getting me ready to accept more into my life by building in my mind, building a better me. It was able to teach me how to maneuver through society because I had a sense of, oh, I want to do this. I want to be an artist. I want to be a dancer. I want to be a cook. Whatever I want to be, Flawless was like, do it. You're all brilliant. I love you. Do it. I don't want to hear you failed. I want to hear you did it. And it, it was that sense I needed. Yeah. He's beautiful. Yeah, I love her. Old gal. <laughs> you told me uh, some stories about staying at our house. Oh, Lord. So, yes, our house is quite the collective. She has aluminum foil ceiling, which looks like brass, but it's actually foil that my dad actually did, Curtis, actually um, did the ceiling years ago. Where from the, the wear and tear of smoke and cigarette smoke and, of course, pot smoke, the ceiling is now a beautiful shade of bronze. But what you might, what you might think is beauty is really just old age on the ceiling. But it... it it's picturesque. It, it's everything. It's those little things and the art and just the bathroom with no door. It's all of it helped make me a better person. It helped me realize that, wow, here's somebody who probably came up the same way I did, but at a time when it was much harder, but it's made it. And I can make it. There's no challenge too small or too big that I shouldn't come to terms with because if I can handle and I'm still here on earth, then I can handle it. A second. Okay, it's still going. Good, that cake? Yeah, I, no, I don't. <laughs> Um, I, you are a writer and a chef and an activist and many, many other things. Can you tell me about, um, some of the things you've done in life that you're most proud of? Oh, um, proud of a lot that I've done, but I could say I'm most proudest of being able to be a part of a community. Um several communities. I'm proud to be a part of the Riverfront Food Bank because the gift of giving is so powerful. Um, it's not so much the acknowledgement of what I'm doing, it's the gratification from being, it's the hugs from people that don't even know me that accept me and, and are willing to hug me and thank me for something I'm volunteering for. I'm not getting paid for this. And I'm most proud of my book. And I'm very proud of my book.
Can you talk a little bit about your book? Um, so, Cooking in Heels is the name of my book. And we wanted it to just be a small memoir, not realizing that this is a chance to teach without actually saying, here's a lesson for you to learn. So, our first set of emails we got back were from people that really enjoyed um, being a part of our Kickstarter to raise funds because in their eyes, they seen this as an educational-based thing. Um, in my eyes, I just seen it as a book. I just wanted to write a book and say I wrote a book. But getting some of these emails and actually seeing faces connected to these emails was priceless. People, like, literally stopping me on the train crying because they got my book. And I'm totally dumbfounded because... Sweetie, why are you cry? <laughs> oh, I have to take a picture with you. I can't believe this. I have your book. I paid for this. And I'm like, okay, calm down. Calm down. But I don't know. I guess younger people growing up in this, to see that there are positive role models means everything because it can give them the sense of going on and wanting to stay on. Not so willing to burn out or change. Like they said, we flip-flop all over the place. No, I don't think we flip-flop as much as we've been pushed all over the place. So, I, we've been genderfied, we've been pushed aside, we've been... We have been pushed all the way down the totem pole as far as people go, as far as humanity go. We are the new slaves, technically. We have went through feminist movements, we have went through slavery, and now here we go through Gender Identity 101. We're having to teach society, it's okay to call me she. It's okay to call him him. And it's okay for them to identify any fucking way they want. It's their business. How does it hurt you? It, it's just, ah. Uh, that pisses me off because people tend to think that, you know, you have a choice, basically. It's your choice to be the way you are. Life could be much sweeter if you just decide to cut those breasts off and make yourself a regular person. I could be flat-chested. It's still not going to be regular. It's not going to happen. It has never been in my DNA to be regular. This is as regular as I'm going to be. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, you talked a little bit about Miss Major. How did you first meet her? Oh, I met Major in Vegas at a Desiree Alliance conference, which is the sex workers conference. She was the keynote speaker, and I introduced the keynote speaker. Um... Not knowing this would connect me and this lady for life. My mom's ex-boyfriend, Frank B.B. Smith, was a negotiator in Attica with Miss Major. They both were co-conspirators on the negotiations for Attica. Fast forward years and years and years and years, she wanted to pay tribute and tell his story. And I heard this story and immediately called my mom and she told me, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. 
told me it was true. It went on from there. We're now lifetime friends and conspirators together. <laughs> You've been doing some traveling with her. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about traveling with the movie major? Um, well, traveling with the movie major is hilarious. Um, her and herself, she's a one-woman show. So you can expect all her juiciness and all her love to come out for the little bit of time you win. It's like she has a refilling button that just keeps her looped in and fabulous because she handles everything very well. She does. You went to you went to Peru recently. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a shit show. No, that was hard because they don't have rights. They don't have the rights we have and you take that away by 12. So, that's... Mm, mm, mm. It, it wasn't the kind of place I would go if I'm going to have to go on vacation. That's not going to be it. Um, beautiful place in the nice part of town. When you step out of the nice side, it's devastation like you've never seen it. Um, pipes running across the street for electricity. It's, it's a real shit show. It's not. Oh, this is Morocco and it's beautiful. No, it's horrible. It's on Peru. It's horrible. Um, the kids were nice. They were enthusiastic and they wanted to learn. Hmm. Hard, hard, hard. It's amazing, though, how there's so much progress in this world and we're still at a point in time where we have to do gender identity studies and trainings so society could know how to handle people that have been there forever. Um, but every now and then the language changes and that's what they read. They're learning Ebonics. That's what they're doing. I know. I know. Just call me a punk, but I know. It's modern day shit that they're trumping out. It's, it's really... I'm not going to say life has come full circle, but it's on its way. It's on its way. And some of the things that they're not willing to give us now, like good housing, is sure to come. It's really my legs. Hangovers, girl. Alright. Okay. Oh, someone's gonna do a lot of editing. So, <laughs> trans people in the media in the past decade. So, we've gone from images of non trans people portraying trans people to be the popularity. Um, there are very few roles actually that actually stars a trans woman as a trans woman. So something's said and wrong to be said about that. But we have positive images. Um, Janet Mock, who I absolutely love and adore, who is not so much 
she's a journalist, a fabulous journalist, and, and I guess host of a show. Um, and Laverne Cox, who's in Orange is the New Black, and some other things. But these are very sheltered images of trans women in the media. And then we fast forward to Miss Jenner, who is highly privileged. And, and I would say erring on the side of political. And, and it, that throws a nasty taste into my mouth altogether. Being a trans woman who has struggled for things like surgery and corrective surgery and struggled to get the help to make me feel like I feel on, to make me look like I feel on the inside, to have these miracle cases now come up where it's okay, just anybody can get SRS um, surgery, but is it coming under the same battlefield that I had to go through? Um, the mental health therapy and all of that. Um, Actually, will you tell me a little bit about your experiences of accessing hormones or accessing surgery? The hormones were not as much as a problem. It was the surgeries. Um, I, of course, couldn't wait because I was going into a field of work where I felt better with breasts. And I felt like the odd man out without. And um, I suffered because I went and got silicone to fix my problem, which didn't fix my problem at all. It um, has caused me lots of problems over the years. It's causing me more of a problem to get it removed with dignity and a sense of seriousness because this is serious. A lot of my girlfriends that have went the same route I have, silicone, now have cancer or have died of cancer. I don't know if it's linked, but clearly there's a linkage here. Um, and how do you prevent that? Now that you have all of these clinics opening that are giving girls surgery, is it really... Why didn't we have this years ago? If progression is supposed to be anything, we should have had this years ago. A lot of people have lost their lives trying to transition on someone's couch, trying to get these surgeries because the desperation of having breasts, of having features the way they want them, was that severe. But people don't see it that way. Society doesn't see, oh, you did it because you wanted to be a freak, or you went, no. I did it because I wanted to match. I wanted to feel like I matched. And now, today, I'm presently trying to have the silicone removed, and that's a challenge. That's a challenge, challenge. I've been... I've had so many appointments for plastic surgeons, it's ridiculous. Um, but we're, we're in a new technical age, and now they're willing to give us all of these surgeries that we've been fighting for for almost our whole lives. People have actually lost their lives trying to achieve this. Um, it's sad. It's sad. It's helpful because now girls, younger... Can, can start new and fresh and have everything they ever wanted. But for somebody like me at my age of 50-something, 
that's already done stuff that can't be turned around. Um, we have a society when I needed that help. When I needed what's going on in society today, I needed 20 years ago. Where was society? Where were the medical professionals that were clearly there? Where were they? Um, was it no interest or this is <coughs> the popular thing now? So it's popular to be trans. It's popular to be on television as trans. But how many of us are really on television? How many of us actually get to play us? <coughs> Kinky, oh, sorry. <coughs> Kinky Boots was about a trans woman who identified and lived as trans in a part of England or London or somewhere around there. Um, but the story on Broadway reads as a cross-dresser. The person that fills the shoes is a man, <coughs> not a trans woman. Um, I identified with Lola. I understood everything that was going on in that movie, including when Lola had to tone it down <coughs> because she thought it would be good to the eye for her not to go in as Lola, <coughs> which kind of threw the whole staff off. What the hell was going on? What happened? And it showed Lola, oh my God, they'll accept me the way I am. That was a big step in the movie as far as I'm considered because it showed not you don't always have to be on, you don't always have to be on a stage. Not every trans woman is a break dancer. You're not going to find these <coughs> always talented girls on stage ready to lip sync a song. That's not life and it's not reality. Also, there's some wear and tear to that kind of lifestyle itself. There's a lot of burnout. Within our community, there is toxic, toxic burnout. Just amongst our community. Um, when you branch out into all these other GLBTIA and all of this stuff, it becomes quite confusing. Um, when I fought so long just to be trans, here we have more to fight for. Um, everything is working in reverse when it should be working for the better. It's still working sort of in reverse. Well, you bring up something that I think is really interesting, is which is like terminology and how the first trans woman you were introduced to, you know, you were introduced to her her as a cross-dresser, and mm. how in Lola the narrative is that she's a cross-dresser. When did the language change? In the past five years. In the past, in five, the years. past five years. It's become politically correct to use the right terms. We have more gender pronouns now than we've ever had in life. Um, it's all so confusing. But at the same time, here is acceptance on crack, so to say. You, you, we're now just so put off by just the tea. We have all these other things going on um, because it wasn't enough. So in a couple of years, I think they're going to tag a couple more definitions or pronouns on because it's not clear. We're, 
I'm just finding out how to be me and be comfortable and happy at 50-something in my skin. And this has been about 10, 15 years. Um, what about the girl that's still not comfortable? Um, sure, she can aesthetically change everything, but is she ready mentally to be where she's asking to be? I say that to say that my girlfriend just had the SRS and is so in question of her sexuality now. Call from Justin. Hello. Hi, how are you? What are you doing? <laughs> um, so, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, what the the calls were of your your trans family and and your trans community in the eighties and nineties and and how you think they have come to fruition or have not come to fruition today. They've come to fruition today, but um, and that's the sad part. Today, so many of my friends are no longer here that it's almost staggering. I don't go to gay pride because it almost breaks my heart that all of these people that I had in my life, and when I say all, there was a point in time where every week I was going to a funeral. Every week I was hearing some horrible, horrible story of girls dying from either silicone or the virus, or and it, it all is surrounded around ignorance. Back in the days when, when HIV was the most terrible thing you could ever hear. It was ignorance that caused people not to get help, not to get medicine. It was ignorance that caused landlords not to house us, period. And that wasn't just on the HIV factor, that was period. And stagnating us as a community, today there's housing for everything. I mean, housing for you name it. But there's no appropriate housing for my own community. We are forced e either into areas that are high drug trafficked or just high risk, period, for someone like me. But that's the only place that's acceptable for someone like me. So sure, I live in Richmond Hill with Queens in a beautiful neighborhood, but when I leave here, I'm gonna have to live in the Bronx because that's the only place that's suitable where a landlord would take my good money. So here it is again, where I'm stuck because I don't know. I don't know. My own people I are forced into SROs, horrible, tiny, tight, little situations to live out their days. When did this happen? That we not only downgraded and downsized in life, but we downsized our own people. Um, me being a sex worker, me being trans, me being an advocate, or being a fabulous person has nothing to do with my ability to live in a nice place. Um, I should be able to if that's what I'm used to. Um, often when people ask me these stories, oh, well, how were you raised? So was the projects horrible? I wouldn't know, sweetie, because I never lived in a project. 
But you automatically assume, because I'm trans, I have lived this really horrible, horrific life, which does not compute. It does not, it, that's not valid. And where is it written that I had to have this horrible, horrible life? Of course, when you throw parenthood into genderism, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be misconceptions all over the place. But when you throw humanity into trans situations, where's the humanity? Where's the, the, where's the dignity that I would have to live in this horrible place that's stapled? Oh, that's where all the trans women live now. I don't want to be in that box. I'm going to be outside the box. I want to live where it's safe. I want to live where everybody knows my name. Sort of like Cheers. I want to feel that way throughout life. Life is not all fluff and fairy tales and flowers. But there's a sense of want that I have. I don't know about every other girl. I don't know about every other guy. It's what I want that, that matters. Um... I can say a lot of my trans sisters that get to come and visit me and get to see this are often blown away, but this is the only way I know how to live. To tell me that I'm going to have to pack up everything and move to an area that I know is a high risk for me because of my past drug history, you're asking me to go down a road that puts me in harm's way again. And and without malice, it's okay. Well, sweetie, that's what we have for you, and it's available. I don't want to see that continue to go on. One of the things I'm totally committed to, to do is to create something for us, by us, that's not connected to them. It's for us. There's a reason. There's a way in. This is our special club, and you can't. So now, this goes to tell you how screwed up society is. Now it's sort of acceptable for men to wear skirts. It's okay. When we've had to fight to wear skirts for the longest, now it's become the Parisian thing to do. Uh, sweetie, when? When... We just wanted to wear skirts, period. And it wasn't acceptable. But now it's acceptable for men to wear skirts. It's acceptable for women to be bald-headed. When there was a time where it was just unheard of. Oh, she's bald. Oh, my God, she's dying. But no, she just got tired of combing her hair. But it became acceptable. It became beauty all over again. It's the Nubian thing all over again. Oh, Afrocentric. So now that's acceptable all over again. When at one time, no, you perm your hair because your shit is nappy. That whole language has changed. When will that happen for us? When will we have the Clinton Hills or the Park Slopes or the phenomenal neighborhoods that we've been pushed out of, Bushwick, that I grew up in? I can't even afford to, to rub my feet up in that motherfucker. But this is where I was raised. It, it's, it's changed so much and there's so much of us missing throughout society because we're, we're stereotyped to this one kind of way of living. We're stereotyped to go to support groups for a Metro card, not for a job, 
within the agency, but we need your numbers. We need you to comply because by your numbers, I'm able to pay my staff who gets to go home and live and pay rent in their cushy houses. But we're getting a Metro card and sometimes a shitty meal. But this is what's offered. But how many girls out of these agencies where you so want my girls to go, but you so don't want to house them, you don't want to employ them, where's the, where's the take home in this? You get to take home, but you get our numbers. So at the end of the day, sweetie, I want to know, at the end of the day, can I come to your home and give you a Metro card and tell you I'm taking your check? <laughs> it, it, it's scary, but this is hard. This is hard to see and face. And as the years go on and I get a little older, I get it. Funding. You need the girls and you need the guys because you need funding. But what are you really doing for them? What are you really, really doing for them? If they go to y'all and they say they need petty cash because they have to pay a deposit that is ridiculous for an apartment, could you help? No. Would you help? No. Would you pass the buck and, and not even tell the truth about it? No. But you would damn sure use them as much as you can. So, I... I one of the things I like about San Francisco and the organizations is that it's a sense of structure in San Francisco when it comes to the girls that you get to see so many of us working within the industry. We're not just not-for-profits ran by. We're not-for-profits ran by us, started by us. That makes sense. That makes more sense to me than a not-for-profit ran by some privileged cisgendered woman that's very, very secure in her job and her roof over her head, but going to all the trainings for trans people, you're not trans, sweetie. So why are you there? Uh, but you're benefiting. You're benefiting coming to all of this stuff. You're benefiting being at these trainings when it would behoove you to take a trans person with you because this person might actually step up or learn or grow. But you're not going to do that because if you do that, you'll actually have to hire a trans person that might have enough training to get by. It's sad. It's sad and I think it's structurally wrong. I think it's morally wrong, and every agency in New York City and around the world needs to be challenged. All these agencies that are for the GLBT needs to hire the GLBT, because this is the face I'm going to see on the other end of the counter. And, and mind you, I know it's a difficult clientele to deal with, but here's where training comes in hand. If you train them, you won't set them up for a fall when you put them in these positions. So you put them in positions you know they're going to fail at, which causes you to what? Fire them and get another one. Funding. It's the funding game. It's not about improving that person's quality of life so they can move on to another position and the next trans person can move in. 
So that that's my goal. That's my main goal. I might die doing this, but that is my main goal. To get something ran by us, for us, where we rehire, and we decide, and we plan, and we make what we want for us. And we don't let them choose what we want. We make it we make it acceptable for us. We make it work for us. We build a garden on a roof that feeds us. We take care of us. If we don't do it, nobody else. We can't ask a politician that is not gender variant to step up and understand what our fucking fight is because they don't. We have a new commissioner of human rights in New York City who was proud to say she's a lesbian. Wow. I, I'm almost blown away because the mayor's wife said she was a lesbian. Now, key word here was, was a lesbian. And I'm with her if that's what she wants to say. But how does that help us? Because she was a lesbian. Does that make her a what? A sympathizer? Because she sympathizes with how we feel, but we're still having housing issues here in New York City. So if you're sympathizing, why don't you open up one of these houses and not give us a closet to live in. Actually give us an affordable space that we can live in that's ours. Hmm. Um, do you have a lighter? Right here. Right here. Right there. Right there. On top of the cloth. I have a question that I want to ask. Yeah. Um, so... I, you know, I've done a lot of, like, research and into, like, looking through archival materials around HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s. <coughs> and really, like, really up in the 2000s as well. And I find it really hard to find um, narratives by or of trans women. And obviously, trans women very affected by HIV. Can you tell me a little bit about what that time was like, and about activism and community support that trans women? It was women scary. Did? They didn't have. We were not. First of all, at one time, they pretty much said we were the trans women were the the spread of AIDS because men would leave their wives and mess with a trans woman. Which wasn't necessarily true. When men were on the down low, AIDS didn't just happen to gay people, it happened to everybody. But that wasn't what you was hearing. You heard that this was a gay thing. This was, it started from a monkey and all kinds of things. It, everybody has their own little thing. Me personally, my biggest fear when it first came out was that people were going, I watched this very ignorant lady on my block put her sister in a painter's uniform every time she had to leave the house. With the hat, the gloves, the mask, everything. Because she had the virus. This lady had to live in her own private, bigoted hell from her own family. And this was a cisgendered woman. So imagine my sisters having a virus and being in nursing homes and in Bailey House and all these places where 
if it just could have been a conversation about the life-saving techniques like taking your medicine, like curving your nightlife, like stopping drugs. Like, there were so many conversations that needed to be held. There were so many things about sharing needles at a time where girls just wanted to get hormones. We're taking needles from other people. Oh, that's my girlfriend. She's okay. And now they're HIV positive because they took that needle that the other girl used. All to get hormones illegally because hormones were not easy to come by. Um, or the IV drug user that, that this is my girlfriend and she's my good Judy sister who used her same needle and wanted to shoot up. Where, where were the people who say, no, sweetie, here, here, it wasn't until Positive House and places like this did it started the needle exchange here in New York City that even gave an ear to the conversation. But it took, it took AIDS to happen for that to happen. That should have happened a long time ago. But it took AIDS for that to happen. And as far as being a trans advocate, my girlfriend did an interview that haunted her for a lifetime with the New York Times about AIDS. Haunted her. Haunted her till she changed her name. Because it was so tagged behind that interview that it also ruined her marriage. They were calm while her soon-to-be marriage, she was on her way to get married. But one of her friends said, before you marry her, you should read this. And found the interview and showed it to her prospective fiancé. He was more upset that this was public than he was that it was gossip. It was that she made it public. But here, it needed to be made public. But she lost everything behind that. She lost him and everything because she wanted to be vocal and verbal about her fight. Didn't have anything to do with anybody else's fight. It was her personal fight that she was willing to tell. And she suffered for it. She's still suffering for it. Did um did ACT UP engage at all with the trans community? No. No, very few times. And when they did, it was, I need you to do a show. I need you to do something very degrading, something, well, we throw you about and perform for us and we'll clap and we'll be. No, they were very starchy and very uppity and they damn sure didn't have a place for people of color. And generally the people of the color that were involved in act up had deficiency of the brain because most of them that were people of color thought they were white so it's kind of annoying to go sit in the meeting no act up is having a meeting let's go hear these very starchy stern voices tell us how we don't exist oh them those girls well you girls are always in the village you're like fucking up our streets there was never this in the day Bullshit. What we didn't have was a place where we could be free, and that's what y'all kind of want again. You kind of want us to go back to that time where we are not okay, to that place where we fear and and we're hiding, and we're it's too late for that. I don't know how to be that girl anymore. 
how do trans people organize themselves around HIV prevention? Um, they became more vocal. Um, telling their stories in a more humane way other than in an obituary is what needed to happen from the start. Um, to hear all of the CDCD stories instead of it just be they don't know how many of our kids how many of our kids were born into HIV and it didn't happen from sexual abuse they were born into it from cisgendered parents but you don't hear these stories you don't hear oh well sweetie she was a hemophiliac and she went to the hospital and the hospital gave her HIV there are so many of those stories but you don't hear them because the red tape and the lawsuits have outlasted their lives um, it's just horrible that that our existence would have to stem on the back of a disease for some clarity and color or acknowledgement that that in itself is ugly and just it's how society wants it it's what they see should happen for us and how they want it to happen for us like we want your stories to be heard but we have to tell it um sort of like the Caitlin story that was not going to be aired until they found a better way to air it. So, here, we wouldn't just do a show with a trans person until we actually had someone from an Ivy League kind of life come out. And we'll take it, oh, we'll put it on TV. It got canceled. Why? Because it was a horrible show. And, you know, well, kudos to the people that stopped it. It was horrible. It was not a depiction of my life. It was horrible. But this was accepting to to society. I I don't see it. I don't I don't even know. I I'm still stunned. I'm still stunned. I'm stunned that she's a Republican. She can be whatever she wants. But I'm stunned that she's trans and a Republican. It makes her an oxymoron and an idiot. But that's okay. I still run with it. Um, hello. Yeah. Huh? Uh, 20. That's one part. Um, so... <laughs> tattoos. Let's talk about our tattoos. Oh, oh T for T. So this, by far, is one of the best things I've done. Because I got to do with my brother, brother sitting over. And to me... T for T really means what it means. Trans for trans. That One, I want everybody that's trans to do this because I think it's empowering. I think it's something that's ours and it belongs to us. And I just dare a straight person to go get T for T. I did laugh, actually. But it's the sense of community doing something for community to me. It means to me that this is a lifetime thing. This is here. It's not going to stop. I, I said did this for me. I'm probably going to do this with my daughter because I think she needs to have one. And I want her to do it for her daughter. 
and or sons, I want this to be something that goes down in history. It's, a, it's something that reminds me every day of the fabulousness between me and you and life itself that we're able to be a community and stand up for our community instead of just sitting in the sidelines and saying, well, you know, I have a purpose, but I don't know what my purpose is. I, I, I'm kind of, but I have a purpose. I just don't know where it's going. It, that's kind of where we've been for so long. And now we have these little things, these little eye-openers to like, so when people ask, what does that mean? It's the definition that means everything. And some go, oh my God, I want one of those. Sure, I think you need one. It's the most amazing thing. It's, it's a look into the future, I think. It's, it's a step toward making our future a much better place. Just awareness, just having it on my back, people are going to be able to say, what does that mean? And I'm going to be able to give an answer. And more than likely, the people are not even in my world. But here it is a chance to explain because immediately especially around here when I say well I'm trans and they go well what is that <laughs> it's not transportation sweetie but they just don't know they're clueless so when you have to break down some of these stories this tattoo will will be an eye-opener it'll be a conversational starter it'll be a way to define what people have not defined um, I just love it. I 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 love it. It's a way of having a connection with my brother that we are now bonded forever. <laughs> In blood. <laughs> In blood. <laughs> In pain. <laughs> pain for me. What What does trans solidarity look like to you? What are ways that trans people should take care of each other? Take care of our elders. Take care of our elders. I fear every day for Sharon Grayson, Miss Major, Flawless Sabrina. I just fear that they're not going to have anything. They were at an era where trans women could not work and could not have a 5041K or, or retirement fund. And that bothers me the most to think that in a couple of years, she's not going to, or people are not going to be interested. So, they don't help, and they don't help out, and, and, you know, it also makes me think of the later, later years, when she's not able to do a lot, or all of them are not able to take care of themselves. Do we stand up and, and say we have to do this? In Philadelphia, they have housing for the aging that are GLB&T. And I went, and it blew I was I I didn't cry in front of them because I'm a pro, but when I came up out of there, I shed some tears. Major was like, are you all right? I said, girl, they take care of their own. How fucking awesome is that? And it's just unheard of. Because we don't. We don't. We need solidarity amongst us in order to make this work we have to care about us and that will show society that we're on one accord 
We're trying to make a difference, not only in our new and young lives, but in their lives as well. That we mean something to them. And it also shows them that we're willing to stand for all their blood, sweat, and tears, that we're all on one accord to make their lives much better. It, it means so much. Is everything? I'm doing good. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add to this interview? I would like to say that we as a community can only understand community when we can help our own community. If we want society to help us, we have to help us first. And then we can pull them around. It took a long time for us to be able to walk in heels. It took us a long time for us to grow breasts and be proud of them and be able to stand up straight and walk. It took a long time to get over Stonewall, which, according to Stonewall, there were no black people, but there were. So we've overcame all these things. We even overcame the two horrible little statues of the two men and the two lesbians, but no trans woman. So there are still things we're overcoming, but if we can just stand unified and become one, we can tackle some of the strong things like Congress, like the way society sees us, the media. If we demand more of our faces in media, it will happen. If these roles are opened up, we should be fighting to get these roles, or better yet, create our own. If we see society's not going to do it, we should be doing it for ourselves. We can't beg for something if we're not going to be willing to fight for something. Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking thank to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What are you eating, that crunchy Frank? Yeah. Mm, I will be eating none of that. <laughs> I don't like leftovers. Uh-huh. Oh my god. Uh-huh.